Reality. Since the dawn of time, man has sought to unravel its fabric, examine the weave, discover its essence. Reality. Plato found it in the shadowy confines of a cave. Descartes in the syllogism. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. They blew it, both of them. Reality, it is here on this blood-red plain, neath this verdant sky, among these stones, surely sculpted by a somnambulant lunatic. Reality, aye, it is here, and the macabre man-thing is about to meet it, head on. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. I'm Paul Matthew Carr, your guide to the weird, the wacky, and the often wonderful of 70s swamp-based monster comics. Today on the program, we have a great one. Adventure into Fear number 19, The Enchanter's Apprentice. Uh, In fact, this is the start of a long stretch of really great and really weird comics. It's a Gerber-tastic extravaganza of 70s goodness. Uh, And the next issue will, in fact, be the launch of Man-Thing's self-titled book. So the next few episodes should be a heck of a lot of fun. And that brings up a point. So as I'm recording this, it's about uh, halfway through 2017, and I've only released five or six episodes so far. And that's, you know... Not cool. Uh, To be fair to myself, uh, this year has been, oh, what's the technical term that people use? Oh, I I know. Cluster beyond all recognition. (laughs) There have been, well, let's just say setbacks. And every time I think I got things back on track, I find that I am sorely mistaken. Uh, I only bring this up because... For a little while there, I had a pretty good listenership. I was getting some some really good feedback, some great comments, and I was starting conversations. Uh, Conversations with people about a subject and a genre that I love. And, you know, and, and that's the whole reason I'm doing this in the first place. The fact that there have been so many delays and postponements and, and, and broken promises, uh, that I, I just lost the thread. And it will take a lot of work on my part to to, to get it back. So uh, so to everyone out there who has stuck by me while I'm got myself together, and all those people who have sent words of encouragement, thank you. Uh, and I hope to be more responsive and productive in the future. So yeah, again, just thank you. But enough of that. Let's get on with the show. Because as I said, this is going to be a really, really good one. I'm not gonna, even going to mess about with any of the, uh, the sundry things and dive right into today's topic, which is... Oh, wait, maybe I should put some kind of, like, transition here or something. A swoosh. Fantasy. I've talked about the resurgence of fantasy in the early 70s once before on this show. About how... The rise of new wave writers like uh, Michael Moorcock and Roger Zelazny and others began to infuse new ideas into the genre and subvert the established trope, as well as the reemergence of popular uh, older works like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, for instance. This really brought about a sort of mini-renaissance to fantasy as a whole. 
And of course, the entertainment industry capitalized on this resurgence in movies, TV, books, and of course, comics. In the 70s, fantasy was everywhere, because in the entertainment industry, it's important to keep one's finger on the pulse of your audience and to take the latest trends in pop culture, then beat them to death repeatedly until no one cares about them anymore. It's the dead horse strategy most companies employ to satisfy their fan base. And this would last throughout the decade and, and into the 1980s as well. Well, one of those types of fantasy stories that became popular back then was the barbarian warrior genre. Sometimes it's called heroic fantasy, but heroic fantasy can also include, uh, you know, your knights in shining armor, your dungeons and your dragons, your hero's journey Cambellian adventure. So barbarian fantasy is sort of a subgenre of a subgenre. And this subgenre is set either in a distant past that never existed or an apocalyptic future that will never be. It's usually populated with large-breasted women in metal bikinis and over-muscled men wielding swords, usually wearing fuzzy diapers and a pair of Ugg boots. And it combined the two most popular of subjects that we in America find so appealing. Unbridled sexuality and gratuitous violence. Why it became popular? Well, that's really a no-brainer. The most popular, or at least the most famous character in this subgenre, is of course Conan the Barbarian. Created in 1932 by Robert E. Howard, Conan had been perennially the archetype of this type of character. And in the 70s, Marvel began to publish a relatively faithful adaptation of Conan with writers Roy Thomas and artist Sal Buscema. Uh, the art in this series, uh, by the way, especially the black and white editions, is really quite stunning. Uh, it's worth taking a look at if you've never seen it. Well, that sparked a resurgence in popularity for the character of Conan and culminated in spin-off characters like Red Sonja and, of course, at the end of the decade, with the film version that contained the immortal line... Crush your enemies, see them driven before you, hear the lamentations of the women. I should point out that uh, that was just me doing an impression of Arnold Schwarzenegger. I know it was pretty spot on, so you'd be forgiven if you thought Arnold was in the in the studio with me. But I, I'm, I'm telling you, it was just me. It's just one of my many, many talents. <laughs> if you're lucky, someday I'll do a Scottish accent. Now that is something truly breathtaking. I can, I assure you. <laughs> so look forward to that. Anyway, uh, in addition to this comic, the barbarian story began to appear in a multitude of stories uh, across a variety of mediums. On TV and adventure sci-fi shows, it was very easy to do a barbarian episode or, or, or a barbarian storyline because it didn't require much in the way of special effects or costumes. It was easy just to put someone in fuzzy shorts with leaves in their hair, have them wield a club and say ugh and drop all their pronouns. In fact, in the latter half of the 70s, Doctor Who would uh, would actually have a scantily clad pseudo-barbarian companion with the introduction of Leela, uh, and much to the delight of an eight-year-old me. Now in film, there were a slew of barbarian-type B-list movies, again due to the relatively cheap production values. You can just film in a desert or on a beach with very little in the way of costumes or, or scripts, for that matter. But it did provide a lot of fighting and titillation. And, and it gets a little tricky here because the barbarian trope begins to get conflated with other types of stories. Cavemen, for instance. In many cases, it was hard to tell the difference. Uh, 
a Neanderthal was simply portrayed as a barbarian without ironworking skills. Uh, and in mythological films as well, there, there was a series of low-budget Italian movies featuring Hercules, or Heracles if you want to be all precise, and they looked more like Franzetta than Homer. Speaking of Frank Franzetta, a bevy of album covers came out at this time, uh, not just from Franzetta himself, but lots of artists mimicking his style, uh, Molly Hatchet, Nazareth, and others. And of course, the preferred medium of all barbarian-style art, airbrushed onto the side of a van. And in literature, uh, the original Robert E. Howard Conan books came back into print, as well as spin-offs and copycats. And there were authors who tried to uh, subvert, reinvent the genre, like Michael Moorcock, I mentioned earlier, who took the barbarian stereotype and used it in new and intriguing ways. I recommend checking out his Eternal Champion stories, for instance. Uh, there are many, so I don't know exactly where to start, I guess, with the Elric stuff. And probably... One of the best examples of this trope, genre style, and about how mainstream it became was uh, later in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, there was a Saturday morning cartoon called Thundar the Barbarian. Basically, it's a very watered down and silly version of Conan, aimed directly at kids. Uh, Some character design by Jack Kirby, oddly enough. Uh, So, you know, Hanna-Barbera style and Jack Kirby, who knew that could happen? Uh, And speaking of things no one knew could happen, that was a segue, people, Uh, Steve Gerber tried his hand at the Barbarian story, and he filled it with magic and monsters and pretty much every fantasy trope you could think of, but of course, in his very own distinct Gerber-esque way. And I'll talk about that right after this. The Fantastic Arts is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that taste forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Scroll War. The arrival of Marvel Team Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler, and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2 in 1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? Adventure in the Fear number 19, The Enchanter's Apprentice. Cover dated December 1973, written by Steve Gerber, penciled by Val Mayerk, inked by Sal Trapiani, colorist Sam Goldberg, letterer Artie Simek, and edited by Roy Thomas. The story opens with Man-Thing in a mystic realm, staring at a castle in the sky. Suddenly, a battle ensues with modern American soldiers, World War I biplanes, and a horde of barbarians. Jennifer Kale then descends on a beam of light emanating from the castle, wearing a metal bikini that would make Princess Leia blush. She informs Man-Thing that they are friends and asks him to take her hand. They are then attacked by Korak, a barbarian warrior with a mystic blade. Korak oozes through Man-Thing to get to Jennifer, whom he thinks is a witch, and attempts to kill her. Then, things get weird. 
Jennifer awakens from a nightmare, one of many she's been having recently. Was it all a dream? Her grandfather Joshua is concerned and comforts her, while her brother Andy complains that he can't get a good night's sleep. Because as we all know, Andy is useless. Later, down in the kitchen, Joshua Kale wonders if these nightmares Jennifer has been having have anything to do with Man-Thing, because of course he does. And Andy eats a peanut butter sandwich. The two eventually go to bed, and as they do, the knife Andy was using to spread the peanut butter morphs into a sword, and the peanut butter itself oozes from the jar and forms itself into Korak the Barbarian. Yes, that's a thing that happens. Korak immediately runs to Jennifer's bedroom to kill her, but is frightened away by Joshua and Andy because there is nothing more intimidating than an old man and a useless boy in pajamas. As he runs away, the enchanter Dakamneh appears. Dakamneh says that he will explain literally everything in the universe. His words. He explains that all of reality, every possible permutation, exists in the same place at the same time on different dimensional planes. And that there has been a disturbance, a rupture in reality, and that all realities are now converging into one another. This, he explains, is not a good thing. But Jennifer has the potential to save them, or something. Because she's a sorceress, maybe. With those helpful words, Jennifer is convinced. So she and Dakama go off to, you know, fix things. I don't know, it's a little unclear. But this leaves Andy to wonder aloud why he doesn't get asked to save the world. I think we all know the answer to that, Andy. Meanwhile, Korak sits in the swamp and broods over his failure. And as he does so, Man-Thing approaches. Korak immediately attacks the creature, but to no avail. His sword simply passes through him repeatedly. Discouraged, he sits down on a rock and broods again. Then a duck wearing a suit and smoking a cigar arrives, because that's a thing that happens, apparently. Then, back at the castle in the sky, Dakamne explains to Jennifer that realities are now blinking into one another as a missile of some sort hits the room they're in and traps Jennifer under rubble as Dakamne buggers off. But then the soldiers and barbarians from earlier in the issue arrive. They rescue her, but only to take her to the Congress of All Realities, which is a thing, in order to kill her. You know, like you do. Meanwhile, back at the swamp, Man-Thing, Korak, and the Duckman... Ah, who we kidding? It's Howard. Howard the Duck. They are surprised by demons rising from the F.A. Schist construction camp. The demons then attack the trio, eager for the joy of slaughter. End of part one. So, all in all, not a very eventful issue. <laughs> I mean, wow. Just, wow. Come on. Where to start with this sort of thing? Uh, interdimensional battles, a barbarian warrior emanating from a jar of peanut butter, demons, a cosmic rupture in reality caused by a construction company, and... Howard the freaking duck. How does one begin to actually analyze this sort of thing? The answer is, you don't. You just strap in, you hold on, and you go for the ride. This is a deluge of craziness that just layers one <laughs> wicked bit of weirdness on another without stop. This kind of thing right here, this is why I fell in love with this comic as a kid. It's just fabulous. 
But there is a point to all this madness, and I'll, and I'll get to that in a moment. But first, I want to touch on a few of the more um, interesting and fun bits going on here. The story opens in what could possibly be described as media res, uh, a story already in progress in the future, or, or maybe it's just a dream. And we get all the different era armies battling one another. If anyone's an old school Doctor Who fan, this reminded me of the Troughton era story, War Games, that, uh, that story too had a bunch of different eras of armies fighting one another, separated by an ethereal barrier. Now, I doubt that was in Gerber's mind when he wrote this, but I like to think my two favorite things are influencing each other. I mean, it's not beyond the realm of possibility. That aside, we then get the appearance of Jennifer in in full fantasy princess garb, descending on a beam of light as as the as the floating castle is is stormed. And remember, this is just the opening few pages. Uh, but then we're given the trope of, it was only a dream. But the interesting part here is that Gerber plays with this notion and suggests that maybe it wasn't just a dream and that it really was happening just in a different reality or consciousness or a different plane or dimension. But we don't get to focus on that for too long because a fantasy warrior emerges from a jar of peanut butter and it amazes me the words that I have to use to describe this comic. And, and I just love, there's a, there's a caption of right underneath this, this transformation from peanut butter. It says, a jar of peanut butter, or is it a jar of man? It's just so awesomely silly. And can we take a moment just to note that Korak, warrior prince of Katharta, another great name from Gerber, he's just really bad at his job. He, he kind of has the personality of a brooding teenager. But this, again, is intentional. Gerber is satirizing or, or parodying the, the barbarian fantasy trope I was talking about earlier and turning him from a badass hero into an incompetent buffoon. And in keeping with the fantasy genre, he brings back the wizard teacher slash mentor figure to explain how all of reality could be destroyed. And incidentally, that destruction is being caused inadvertently by fascists, fascist construction in the swamp a not-so-subtle comment on the destruction of natural places being the end of reality. And there's there are obvious Disney-esque-looking characters being portrayed here. Uh, they look like either tycoons or, or pimps, maybe? Uh, a combination of the two? Possibly in reference to another swamp that had recently been paved over in Florida, where numerous fantasy worlds came together in the form of a theme park. It's not a coincidence that Howard the Duck looks a hell of a lot like Donald. That would actually get Gerber in a lot of trouble later on in the future, but that's another story. And come on, Howard the Duck, people. No more than just a goofy cameo here. Uh, he'll have more of an appearance in the next issue, and I'll have much more to say about it then. But knowing where this character goes and the popularity and infamy he will engender... It's just so fun to see him emerge from behind a bush with that immortal line, finding yourself in a world of talking hairless apes. Now that's absurdity. I feel he should be talking with a really bad New York accent. That's just me. Uh, but speaking, oh, immortal lines. Uh, this is one of my favorite bits of uh, throwaway dialogue. Uh, it's when the soldiers capture Jennifer and they take her away. A warrior shouts, To the balloons, men! 
because they came in hot air balloons, obviously, but the image of a loincloth, sword-wielding barbarian shouting, To the balloons! That's just glorious. Now, Man-Thing himself is, for the most part, just a bystander in this story. He has no real part to play other than to stand there and wait for Gerber's imagination to get around to him again and adding him back to the story. Now, this gets back to what I've said many times before about how Man-Thing is a conduit through which other stories take place, around him or through him, quite literally through him in several instances in this issue. We'll have a part to play, a very big part to play, later. But for right now, Gerber is Gerber has created a fantasy playground, and Manny will just have to wait while he has fun messing around in there. This is not to say that this is just craziness for craziness sake. Far from it. Gerber is building his mythology here. For a while now, he's been teasing the swamp, the Nexus, as a central point of a greater universe. Not just a cosmic universe, but a multi-dimensional, all-encompassing, all-reality multiverse. Everything exists within his world. Not only does this allow him to literally do anything he wants, tell any story he wants... I mean, if anything can happen and all realities exist, then whatever story he wants to tell, no matter how bizarre or ridiculous, it can be told. In addition to this, he now has free reign to let his imagination go wild. And not only that, in a very sneaky, subversive way, he's taken control of the entirety of the Marvel Universe. This is, after all, a shared universe, a shared multiverse. And if the Nexus is the center of it all, the thing where all realities emerge and all stories are told, then ultimately they come from and are controlled by his creation. That throwaway muck monster that no one took seriously is ultimately the most important character in the Marvel Universe, even if no one realizes that fact. And that's cool. This is a brilliant bit of comic book joy. And the best part? It's only part one. I'll be back right after this with a few closing thoughts. Hi everyone, I'm Paul Matthew Carr, and I'd like to introduce you to a brand new podcast all about the craft and the process of writing. It's called Word After Word, and each month I'll be joined by Professor David Hicks to discuss the skills and methods needed to be a great writer. Using examples from novels, short stories, and poetry, as well as TV and film, we'll dissect passages, beautiful scenes, and characters, and investigate the process writers have employed in order to create their great work. Along the way, we'll be joined by special guests, best-selling authors, poets, as well as up-and-coming writers, to get their advice and learn the habits that make them successful at what they do. So join us, Paul Matthew Carr and David Hicks, for Word After Word, a podcast on writing. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. You can also find us online at wordafterwordpodcast.com. So that's it for this episode, and I highly suggest you track down this issue. It is just a joy to read. It's uh, 70s comics in all its goofy glory, an example of, you know, Gerber being Gerber. This is exactly why I had the notion to do this podcast in the first place, and and next time we continue with this story, more more fantasy craziness, more genre-bending satire, and of course, more Howard the Duck.
And best of all, Man-Thing finally gets his own title. It's Man-Thing number one. And and also coming up in future episodes, uh, many will be making uh, guest appearances across the Marvel Universe in, in, in the Avengers, in Marvel 2-in-1, Daredevil, among others. And I'll be covering all of those as well. And hey, thanks again, everyone, for hanging in there with me while I get it together, man. And uh, <laughs> I'm having fun doing this, and I'd love to hear what you think. And so... All that's left to say is, you've been listening to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. The Nexus of All Realities is a Daddy Elk production. Man-Thing and all related titles are copyright Marvel Comics, and no infringement is intended. The show could be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you head on over and leave a review, I'd appreciate it, and I'll be your best friend. You can contact the show via email at nexus at daddyelk.com or online at nexusofallrealities.com and leave a comment on individual episodes. You can also connect with the show on Twitter, at Nexus of All. The Nexus of All Realities is for entertainment purposes only. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Thanks again, everyone, for listening. I'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>